Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. It's the Wonky Show. Uh, it's all change at OFS. We'll have a think about what happens next in HE regulation. Uh, you see, you are going on strike, but are the disputes resolvable? And Peters is out. What did postgrads put up with during the pandemic? It's all coming up. I might happen to think that that's not a particularly helpful view of, of how to how to regulate <laughs> universities, but there, there is an argument to be made that they are in, that they are trying to act in the student interest. Uh, they just haven't yet to get the message over that students um, agree that that is their interest. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm your host, Jim Dickinson, and here to help us understand what's happening this week, two fantastic guests. Uh, In Bushy Park, Sean Waring is the Deputy Vice-Chancellor at the University of Northampton. Sean, your highlight of the week, please? Um, It's going to be tonight when I go for a dinner at the Leathersellers Hall, which is one of the ancient London livery companies because Northampton um, has a centre for, for leather, creative leather technology. How exciting. What, what are you I having know, for dinner? I get out. I get out, actually. It's a re- really exciting bit. It's like I get, I, I'm, I'm in the flat, not actually in the park. But, yeah. <laughs> wow, e- excellent stuff. And self-isolating in Wakefield. Neil McKenzie is Associate Director Membership at Sheffield Student Studio. Neil, your highlight of the week, please. Um, well, I mean, breaking my self-isolation, I will be released at midnight today, uh, tonight and we'll be able to go for a run uh, in the the lovely lovely surrounds of Wakefield tomorrow so I'm looking forward to that greatly. What are you going out at midnight for a run? I don't think midnight Jim no I might might wait until the morning but I I am fairly eager to get out of the house now. I was going to say put that on Insta. Right now (laughs) we start this week with the office for students. Chief Exec Nicola Dandridge is off. There's a new director of fair access on their way and a new strategy to look at. Sean what's in there? Oh thanks Jim. So um The Office for Students has been with us for four years, though um, to many of us it might feel like a bit longer than that. They've got jurisdiction in England... Um, and they've, as you've just said, they've launched their consultation into their, their second three-year strategy. Um, it's intending to cover three areas of activity, quality of standards, equality of opportunity and enabling regulation. And um, Wonky has already produced thousands and thousands of words on uh, whether the right things are in, the wrong things are out. Um, and if it's a proper strategy. <laughs> yes, we have. And um, if you haven't seen them, a, a kind of whole range of uh, top wonks and uh, all sorts of people have given us uh, some fantastic content this week talking about OFS's future. Neil, what uh, what stuck out for you in the strategy? Well, well look, it's, it's, it's important to say something positive, isn't it? Um, so I think there's something interesting about the, the local prosperity edition in there. Um, it's been a hobby horse of mine for a while around the regional differentiation of outcome data. Um, and if that local prosperity line is going to say we're going to do something about that, that is a big step forward for one of the key metrics that, that OFS is always going to set um, around, around outcomes. 
I am though struck by some of the, I don't know, the, the top down strategy stuff reminded me of a, a an article that uh, Ron Aman from uh, back in the day wrote about a Sovietological view of modern Britain, this whole thing with three year strategies and we're going to go here and there and I'm never sure about exactly what some of these things are intended to do and there is some really worrying lack of talk about student engagement which Wonky have picked up on very well um, and we really need to to re-engage what we mean by student voice because it's not surveys and it's not just it's not just raw data we've got to actually talk to student leaders um, and if councillors are the are the people we talk to about understanding a view of a neighbourhood I think we can reasonably say that student union officers are the people that you talk to to understand what students think. Yeah Sean I mean it's interesting isn't it because the, if it, on the certainly on the kind of priorities front uh, as I've noticed on the, on, the, on the site this week, there's a couple of three pages that, that kind of remind us of all the things the ministers told OFS to do. Mm. There's not a lot in there about what students have said. No, no, it's very reactive to government agendas um, and it's got a, a poor record of engaging with students and, and contrasts with um, QAA, the Quality Assurance Agency, in that way. Um, I, I've been reading through, obviously, in preparation for this morning um, and it reminded me again why um, I find it difficult to read OFS documents because it, it takes a scolding tone with the sector. They always sound cross. They sound like a parent at the end of their tether. Um, and um, I was really fascinated actually by the, the distinction of good providers and bad providers, which I thought really went to the heart of their inability to work with complexity and nuance. Um, as if we weren't, you know, we're, we're all navigating a very complex field. Um, almost entirely, I think, with with the intention to do the best for students and the best for staff. Um, and some of those things play off against each other. So, um, as, as Wonky's correctly pointed out, there's a lot of discrepancies in the rhetoric, in the principles and the practice, and, and it's very rich pickings for wonks. Um, but you did say on the site, and I agree with you, they're regulators, they're going to regulate. Um, and I, my proposal here would be that the sector needs to take regulation in its stride and not get too bogged down in it. Um, I think the, the conversations could be quite bad for staff morale and probably student morale too. Um, and uh, I think I would give it exactly the attention that is required to meet the regulatory principles, which actually I think benefit the sector. I think the focus on um, some of the data and metrics has been really helpful. The, the TEF did highlight um, to an extent which hadn't been done before uh, the the awarding gap between um, black and, and white students. And I think that that has changed the way we discuss that. Um, and I think there's other aspects of the regulation, um, student protection plans, which are really useful. Um, so I, I, I think we should accept that they're regulating us um, and we should get on with doing um, you know the day job, which is actually, as they say, way above that that threshold benchmark. I mean, Neil, look, you, you know, I mean, there's obviously always when OFS publishes something uh, this this kind of issue about tone and and i guess you know for people who've worked in the sector for a long time obviously the tone is different from the predecessor organization because that was a funding council and this is a student interest regulator but in terms of what it actually does has there been a shift towards the kind of student interest the student you know kind of stuff the 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 the, the things that students really care about or is it more kind of tone so far uh, well i think uh, andy westwood's piece um for the site was really instructive here when he, it, it it's it's a regulator of, of its time um and that 
politics has shifted so far in that time that it, it's very difficult to know exactly what what we think it, it is doing. Yes, it, yes, it is a regulator, and regulators should, should regulate. Regulating in the student interest, well, I think we have we have an argument going on about what the student interest is. Um, if it's if it's the interest of the students who are currently within the system, I think the last year would would say that. No, it wasn't. It wasn't regulating in the student interest particularly. Uh, we did a lot of work at, at Sheffield about trying to represent student interests in the in the pandemic, and and there wasn't a huge amount of helpful stuff coming out from the OSS about OFS about that. But I think government w- would say that the student interest is 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 driven by this this outcome data and high income post post qualification, and therefore it, it is interesting in the student interest. Students just might not know it yet. I might happen to think that that's not a particularly helpful view of of how to how to regulate <laughs> universities, but there there is an argument to be made that they are in, that they are trying to act in the student interest. Uh, they just have yet to get the message over that students um, agree that that is their interest. Th- through the data, you could say that there's a focus on minority student interests where those voices haven't been heard, and they haven't traditionally been heard through students' unions or through some of the other ways that those voices um, can be amplified in universities, um, and so. So although um, I don't necessarily agree with all the ways uh, it's approached, I think you could argue um, that different student voices have come to the fore through the work of the OFS. Sean, I've got this kind of hypothesis. Let me kind of run this by you, right? You're 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 a you're a senior person in a in a university, right? So obviously, one of the things that happened this week is that um, the in the Lords, the government announced that the uh, OFS had opened an investigation into what has gone on at Sussex over the Kathleen Stock case. And, you know, I'm not talking about the case uh, on the podcast this week, uh, but, but but I thought it was really unusual because we, we it's incredibly rare that OFS names a provider. And, and, and actually, outside of the initial conditions of registration that were imposed, and there was only a very small number when people kind of got onto the register, very rare we hear about individual providers. And actually, what we hear is a lot of kind of threat mood music, talking about getting tough, talking about tackling pockets of poor provision and so on. Is it that because no one's named, everyone feels slighted? Is it a bit like that thing where, you know, we were all nine in the class and the teacher would say, I'm very disappointed in you. And you'd be thinking, yeah, but you're disappointed in, you know, Johnny in the corner, not in me. <laughs> Just before anyone writes in from Sussex. Yeah, sorry, Sussex. Uh, no, no conclusions have been reached in that investigation. It was just that yeah. um, Sussex was named as being investigated. But it's so rare we hear the name of an individual provider, isn't it? Yeah, I think it goes back. I mean, obviously it goes to that point you made about um, being reactive to government agendas and government agendas um, also follow you know particular media stories, don't they? And I think in this case, actually, it was such a intersection of um, d- different agendas. It was a really fascinating case. So, you know, I've, I've been um, talking to colleagues across the sector trying to get different perspectives on it because I guess it was one of those intersections of a lot of agendas where something absolutely real happened. Um, there were real consequences. And I think disentangling that is, um, I, I can imagine actually that just looking at that shines a spotlight on some of the things we're, as you said, we're all wrestling with. These, these are going, these debates are going on everywhere. We're all wrestling with this. Um, and certainly I think there was a bit of a, you know, um, there, but for the grace of God, you know, could have gone many, many organizations. But I think it's really important as well when you when you mentioned the, the voice of minority students that that the OFS purports to to be to be, to be front, like putting front and center through, through all of its data. I mean, 
if 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 it's going to get dragged into into media stories like this, I'm not sure it is putting the voice of those minority students mm-hmm. front and, front and center, and it, and it seems to be it seems to be lo- losing that focus if if the media is is enabling it to to go off course. Yeah, I guess we're all we're all trying to work our way through um, you know that that balance of freedom of speech versus individual sense of safety or you know actual physical safety or psychological safety i think we're all working our way through that uh, i guess i see this as just part of that debate these all of these reactions are part of that progress of coming to a, a point at which um i guess we've assimilated it into our ways of thinking and all our practices but um, it's interesting sean isn't it because you know one of the things that i noticed about the statement was um, OFS is investigating effectively on the basis of the current freedom of speech duty, which is one of the public interest governance principles. That's, you know, in the regulatory framework. Of course, because there isn't, um, a kind of explicit condition of registration that relates to kind of safety or welfare or safeguarding or, you know, that kind of thing. It, 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 that that whole thing about you know discrimination, mental health, you know that the, the whole welfare thing, <laughs> it isn't really a focus of OFS. And and the danger, I guess, is that if you're on the ground, kind of balancing this range of really complex duties, yeah. but OFS <laughs> with a new director of academic freedom and freedom of speech, he's only yeah. focused on perhaps one of those duties. That's tricky, isn't it? I was thinking. I went to a talk by um, Sir David Watson a, a long time ago, uh, the late Sir David Watson, um, who's VC of Brighton and then later a college principal at Oxford. And he said, a university that's easy to manage isn't a university. (laughs) But may well be a higher education (laughs) provider on the register. (laughs) (laughs) But I just thought that that just accepts that that all of these debates are going to go on. They're going to get fractious they're, they're going to be difficult they're going to be painful but that is that's being in a university and those those tensions between um you know as the regulatory requirements versus um the, the much more um dynamic and fluid um changes i think in in how universities actually run and actually operate and, and do their day-to-day work yeah. um I, I think you just accept the tension and then try to keep focused as Wonky have said actually on that that longer term vision that much bigger vision about what we're here to do in society for students and supporting our staff um, mm. through those processes N- N- Neil on the spot now let me put you on the spot if you could wave a magic wand what would be a really kind of good thing that uh, OFS could do that, that maybe is kind of mentioned in the strategy or perhaps half mentioned or whatever over the next year you know let's, let's be positive actively moving to regionally differentiate um, outcomes data um, so our I work in Sheffield. South Yorkshire is is a is a low wage uh, area. That there is a perverse incentive to the University of Sheffield to send the best and the brightest down to graduate schemes in London because even in equal level jobs they will get paid more to be in London than they will in South Yorkshire. That is not the government strategy. That is not what the university was founded to do. So actually making some meaningful engagement in that to switch away some of the perverse incentives and it goes even deeper that for widening participation that the perverse incentives at the moment are to re- are to recruit students from wealthy backgrounds with high levels of social capital because they will go on to earn more no matter what they no matter what they study well we, you know, we've got so much work to do still on um uh, race equality mm. uh, in he and so ev- every single step forwards on that is a good step great stuff now let's see who's been blogging for us this week I'm Anna Jackson, Head of Customer Insights at Pearson. I've written a piece about innovation in teaching and learning. I say I've written, but it was a joint effort. I spoke to three winners of our recent HE Innovate Teaching, Learning and Student Support Awards, who spilled the beans on how they made innovation happen in their institutions. 
we talked about what universities can practically do to encourage and nurture innovation. And according to our winners, it's about making sure internal processes don't become a barrier. It's about mentoring and supporting new staff and helping them to navigate people and processes. It's about creating spaces where reflective conversations can happen and about making innovation part of the discussions already taking place around evaluation and feedback so that innovation becomes baked into the everyday. Now, meanwhile this week, the University and College Union have announced they're going on strike. Neil, what did we learn? Well, so here we go again, Jim. Uh, UCU's announced that 58 universities uh, will see three days of uh, strikes from the 1st of December through to the 3rd. Uh, there'll also be action short of a strike commencing on the 1st in those institutions and uh, an additional six others. There's also reballoting taking place in a number of the branches where um, UCU got close uh, to meeting the uh, thresholds in the anti-trade union laws, um, which would suggest that there is a plan for escalation in the new year um, if no one comes back to the negotiating table. Um, we've had the increasingly standard exchange of fractious uh, press releases and fairly unedifying uh, tweets uh, going off between the organisations. Um, and yeah, it, it will be students caught in the middle again. Yeah, this is, uh, this is really tricky stuff, isn't it, Sean? Because it, because it's, it, it feels like we've not really moved on since 2019, 20, for whatever reason. King, there are elements of this that, um, kind of predate a lot of, a lot of our current, um, you know, regulation, staff protection, um, mm. you know, legislation, which does put protection in place for staff. And I, I feel like it's, um relates to an, an earlier time and I'd, I'm not sure it's engaging with the financial reality of the sector. Neil, this is tricky this, isn't it? Because it feels like certainly on the pension side, we'll perhaps come to paying conditions in a second, but on the pension side, it feels like fundamentally this is a row about um, you know, valuation and estimates and how the economy is going to be doing in X number of years. And it feels like a row between UCU and the pensions regulator, but that can't be actually staged between those two. So it has to be staged between UCU and UUK. It all feels kind of really difficult and, re- and really difficult to understand how it might get solved. Yeah, I mean, so it has. I have to have cards on the table here to say that I'm a member of the USS Pension Scheme. Um, which does somewhat cloud my uh, judgment in uh, looking at the over 30% reduction in my uh, pensionable income that the uh, modeler suggests um, in, in, in where my opinion lies. Um, I think it shows that it, if, you, if, you, if you try and take on university staff, you are taking on some of the world experts in some of these fields. And a group of experts in, in this field are saying, you are wrong. Um, and they have a pretty good academic background in saying why. Um, I understand how it is being described as, look, it's intractable, but they're just going against the employers because it's the only place they can go. But actually, I think there is a legitimate cause that UCU are saying, well, you know, the employers are saying that they agree with us, they've got concerns, but we'd really like to see some contract, concrete action of, well, what are you doing about those concerns then? It's okay putting it in your press release, but can we have some evidence of you actually going and saying we have the following concerns and wish to make the following changes because I do, I do think there is there is such a lack of goodwill that those steps will make a difference and we've just got to look at this this critical issue of, of staff morale and the feeling on in the sector that someone's got to do something about and and we can't just leave it to to this really fractious and what appears almost to be a, an attempt to to exhaust the staff into capitulation yeah 
I agree, Neil. I, I think I don't think we're engaging as a sector well enough with the psychological reality of uh, what's going on for staff. As, as I said, I don't, I don't think. I mean, my my own view is there's a, a an underpinning financial reality to the university's position, and you you see a. Um, the University and Colleges Employers Association position. Um, but I don't think we're engaging with the, the morale um, of staff sufficiently well, um, what it felt coming through um, COVID and the adjustments that were made. And I think our, our earlier discussion as well about um, the OFS, the sense that there are all these outside forces getting at HE and that in the end it lands on the heads of individual staff and their workloads. So um, I think we need to talk differently Um within organisations to make sure that people feel heard. And even if we can't resolve the underlying financial issues, that we are doing more to explain why we're in the situation we're in and doing more to mitigate what it feels like to be a member of academic staff at the moment under some of the pressures they're under. Sean, just on, on, on four fights, on the mm. kind of paying conditions uh, dispute, I mean, you know, what one of the kind of, you know, the, the, the rumbling conversations that has been around for a really long time kind of within UCU and around the edges, I guess, has been the extent to which you can hold together the whole sector. You know, you know, mm. you're the, clearly there are providers on, you know, the OFS register and, you know, in mm-hmm. the national pay deal that could afford, you know, something mo- mo- you know more generous than has been offered. And there are others that are you know, kind of wincing at even what's on the table now. How, mm. you know, can can national pay bargaining survive in this way? If you go to the UCR website, there's actually a really useful, well, I think it's a really useful um, infographic. And you can see pay in the sector um, compared to the wider economy, um, comparing teaching professionals in schools and FE and HE, um, and looking at pay growth over the last 20 years uh, for HE professionals, and also how VC pay compares to the median employee pay. Um, So there's a whole load of data there. Um, And I guess I I would, before we got into a conversation about um, the rights and wrongs of of, um, pay and other conditions in the sector, I think it's really useful to to check out um, those infographics. Uh, In relation to can pay bargaining hold for the sector, um, I've got a huge respect for UCA, actually. I think they they come in on a, a very well-informed position and I think they negotiate very successfully. So I think the sector's uh, got a massive interest in supporting the work of UCA. Um, I totally agree with you about uh, differences across the sector, different um, types of providers, scale of providers. And um, as, as we've touched on already, Neil said, different parts of the country and different paying conditions. Neil, Neil, we mustn't uh, move off this without talking briefly about um, the kind of student position now. Um, uh, Larissa Kennedy, the NUS president, has you know offered support and solidarity for the industrial action, but uh, I get a sense that the picture is a bit more mixed on the ground. Oh, it, it is. I mean, students were so uh, had such a difficult year, difficult eighteen months um, that the the prospect of disruption. Uh, is the thing that people are focusing on, and that that obviously is is something that students students wish to avoid. But students wishing to avoid disruption doesn't necessarily mean that they they disagree with their with their staff. I think that there is um, huge confusion as to what all of it means. Um, I would, it, I mean, it's incredibly important that throughout this we we do whatever we can to make sure that this doesn't become an argument between student bodies and people on picket lines, because that is not. That, that is not helpful and is not good for the long-term health of our sector. Um, there's a lot of talk in the sector. There's some, there's some student unions that are going to referendum. The, the question that 
it is always the problem is what what on earth is the question here do you agree that do you agree that staff um should go on strike a lot of students would say well pro- probably not because i'd rather i wasn't disrupted do you agree that staff should be paid more yeah fair enough i really like my lecturers i think they should be paid more um do you agree that um with the ucu's position on the valuation of the pension scheme i don't know i'm not an actuary like it, it's really difficult to know what question to put in front of people to say well what is your opinion on this of course students are going to be disappointed at disruption it doesn't mean that they necessarily disagree with the cause of their lectures and their academic support staff now uh, every week on the show we delve deep into the sector's past to discover stories of how things were and how things came to be with nottingham trent's academic registrar mike Rapp- Cliff, here's the hidden history of HE. Strange rules for regulating the lives of students uh, probably reached their peak as the university started to modernise. And one of the things that brings that into sharp relief is when different kinds of people come to university. So there's a, a, a major phase after Oxford uh, has uh, admitted women and students have returned from after the First World War who are more mature, more engaged with the world, about how the university can control their lives. So there's a, a great moment where the uh, Vice-Chancellor of the University of Oxford from 1920 to 1923 decides that he's going to ban elevenses because he's decided um, that this is a, a frivolous thing for students to do. They shouldn't be doing this. He's going to ban them. And so he starts working out how to do that. And he gets this petition in from the women's colleges um, complaining that um, students couldn't stand, stand the strain of going from nine to one without sustenance. Uh, and he goes on to say, well, he thinks that it would probably be a good idea if they practice social austerity. But if you look at the rules that students are having to deal with in the, in the 30s, they're just wonderful in terms of the depth. And students get this kind of panoply of bits of information telling what they can or cannot do, where they can stay, um, what they can bring with them, what they can do. So they're not allowed to, to bring a car. Now, current residents of Oxford will be delighted by the notion that it was very clear that you get a small slip of paper saying, don't bring a car to Oxford, you're not allowed. But the rules go on to set out all sorts of other things you can't do. Um, undergraduates will not loiter in the streets at coffee stalls or at the stage door of a theatre. Um, they will not take the chair at any public meetings. They're not allowed to set up magazines without permission. Um, this whole set of rules about um, not being allowed to take part in acting unless you've got permission. Uh, no one is allowed to um, visit any bars, uh, strictly for, forbidden from going to any of the bars in the city. Um, and there's the a set of rules for how you have to organise um, dinner parties. Uh, flying is not allowed without proctorial permission. Um, you have to go and get leave before you do that. What, of course, is scary are the rules they've uh, come up with for how to handle men and women being together. So there's a whole set of rules about the amount of chaperoning that the, the women members of the university, the, the women who've just become undergraduates for the first time, are allowed. Um, they have to have a companion approved in advance if they are to meet with a man student. Um, and they're certainly not allowed to take them uh, to their room. Um, and there's a whole set of these kind of rules that, that work, work their way through. Um, parties of men and women undergraduates may not be held unless each woman undergraduate has previously forwarded to the proctors the written leave from the principal of her college. It is most important that academic dress should be worn. Uh, 
So the prospect of organising all of these things is, is great. Now, there's a there's I thoroughly recommend Jane Robinson's Blue Stockings books because it, it it charts out how people actually were quietly breaking all these rules and and, and living with them, and that, that not all of them were were actually enforced. But there's a real tension here about how the university has decided that it is looking after people. Now we've seen off a minister who was excited about the notion of in loco parentis, and for those of us who's looked at this kind of rule, this is what in loco parentis meant this kind of controlling your students lives and i think we should be very glad that we're not trying to do that now hi there it's debbie from the team and i'm here to tell you about an exciting new event we have coming up early next year higher education can be tricky to navigate there's loads of different sector organizations and representative bodies with multiple policy agendas and half the time they all sound like they're speaking a different language At Making Sense of Higher Education on the 14th of February in London, we'll take you on a Team Wonky guided tour of higher education. We'll be diving deep into the history, culture and politics of our sector and equipping you with the insight and tools you need to navigate the choppy waters of life in universities. Because the more we understand about where we've come from and where we are, the better the decisions we'll make about where we should go. And we think everyone in higher education should be part of that conversation. So, whether you're early in your higher education career, taking on a new role in responsibilities, or even joining a university board of governors, join us for Making Sense of Higher Education in February. To find out more, go to www.wonky.com forward slash events. And finally, Advance HE has published the annual Postgraduate Taught Experience Survey, and engagement looks to be an issue, Sean. Um, That's right, yeah, engagement has dropped. So this is the Postgraduate Taught Experience Survey, Um, comes out annually. We've just had the report. Um, 87% of respondents said that they'd been taught mostly or entirely online and um, overall satisfaction had dropped. However, I think it's worth pointing out that it's dropped um, to 78% from last year, 79% and 82% in 2019. So actually it's a 4% drop overall between um, pre and post covid um, so I think there, there is a little bit of mitigation in there. Um, what we can see is the ongoing disruption of the pandemic. Um, but there's hugely, hugely interesting information in there about how much postgraduate um, taught students, master students mostly, value on-campus facilities, how much they value community, um, and how much also they value flexibility. So they obviously do, many of them do enjoy the benefits of um, studying online as well as being on campus. Um, the other thing that came out really strongly was the difficulty for many of balancing um, study alongside other commitments. And what I was looking for was the gender breakdown of those, actually, because when I when I looked at the comments, it looked as if um, balancing family responsibilities and study was really difficult. And I, I wondered why they hadn't focused on the gender element, because they looked very gendered comments to me. Um, but I did think the overall feedback from the survey was really useful for how we shape our provision post-pandemic because of that, the balance of the benefits of um, technology-enabled learning, but the emphasis on using on-campus facilities, student community, um, and face-to-face teaching. It... um I mean, Neil, this is not, it's not radically different to lots of other surveys we've seen so far that kind of cover what happened during the pandemic, right? And, and, and I guess one of the tricky things is we're consistently getting a kind of aggregated picture that says people missed each other. And also people liked the flexibility, but we don't know whether they're the same people, do we? No. And yeah, it's, it's really difficult to draw conclusions from, from everything that, 
that we've seen uh, coming out of the the last year. Um, I think that there are admirable efforts to try and adjust the learning and teaching, and then there are, there are some that are just well, everything says we've got to go back to face to face as quickly as possible, and you know I, th- I think we've learned a little bit more than that. But I appreciate that a lot of the trends coming out of it saying I miss the face to face opportunities to be around my my uh, my friends and and course mates. I think postgraduate tour is a is a particularly interest to me at the moment. It is such an intense experience, um, and it is that that one one year kind of one hit. Um, and it's it's such a varied experience as well if you if you change institutions so those students who go straight into their postgraduate tour if they change institution um or if they're an international student studying in the UK for the first time there is a huge amount that happens in that first year in an undergraduate program to learn about how an institution works that 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 is your entire experience as a postgraduate taught student. And I think one thing that the institutions and the student unions need to take from this research is to say postgraduate taught students are trying to tell you something about how their year feels um, and they need specific attention because of the intensity and the speed of their experience and it is radically different to that of undergraduates. Sean, certainly my, you know, my experience talking to people around the sector is it's really easy for p- postgraduate taught you know the experience for PGTs to be kind of you know to fall down between two stools because you've got people talking about taught programs that really are focusing on the undergrad experience and then you've got bits of a university that are talking you know perhaps in in a doctoral college about the PGR experience and and it's easy to forget this group in the middle isn't it? Um, It can be yeah it can as you said it can be left out of both um, analyses uh, but they're a you know a hugely important group, a growing group. It's great to see more students taking master's courses, um, and actually, as you said, you can see they're a very specific group. It's a very intense period of time. Um, you know, often nine nine months taught and then a three months dissertation. So it's kind of gone in a flash. One of the challenges for Advance HE, of course, is when to survey the students um, uh, to make sure that they they've had an overview of their experience, but to catch them before um, they're, they're not around so much anymore. So it's it's a difficult period to survey but it's a very important um, group of students Um, and as I said I think it's actually a microcosm of probably what a lot of students have experienced over the last um, 18 months, two years now Um, Mm. in in terms of as you said that information about how do we support and protect community how do we enable students to access facilities at the same time as maintaining that level of flexibility Neil I thought the thing that you know the other thing that came to really clearly here was the um, when, for whatever reason, and you know, this time round, obviously, to you know, considerable extent, it was about the pandemic. But when, for whatever reason, the realities don't match the expectations, you've got a real problem, haven't you? And, and the way in which the sector kind of handles and sets expectations in a kind of, you know, very, very marketized kind of bit of the sector, the you know, PGT courses, is is a is a is a tricky issue, isn't it? It is. And I mean, we mentioned in the earlier discussion about the financial health of the sector. Um, and, and we know how, how much budgets are being driven by, by international postgraduate taught experience. And if, if you get it wrong, there's a real long term risk here because people talk to one another and say, well, that, that wasn't a great experience. Actually, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that's a good place to go. Um, so yeah, th- there is, there is a really important piece of work to be done around making sure the expectation is, is right in this, in the wild west part of the sector, really. Because there's no, there's no, there's no regulation of the fees. There's no, it's, it's, you know, pa- pack them yeah. high. Yeah. Um, if you, if, if you are, if you are not a, a good faith, um, recruiter, you can, you can pack them pretty high and get a good income out of it. Yeah. It's, I mean, there are it's, market forces at work in that, aren't there? I mean, you can't, you can't be out of line with, um, uh, competitors. I mean, they're they're quite they're quite finely tuned 
scratch. Yes. Yeah. So, so there is there, there is there is a, there are market forces at work, but it is it yeah. is not a it is not a pure and functioning market across across the entire HE sector. So there are there are there are there are also quality signals that come out of pricing that 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 uh, make it Veblen. Sean, one of the things that keeps happening to me, and it's happened to me again this week, is when I'm kind of pitching up to events, and, and at this time of the year, quite often I kind of pitch up at, you know, course rep events or, you know, stuff that has got, you know, kind of the new generation of kind of student representatives coming through. It's all fascinating stuff. I keep meeting international students who are talking about the difference between the, the kind of dream that was sold to them by their agent and then the reality of their university, what's happening in the UK and so on. And this, you know, there's, there's a pattern coming through of people, you know, expressing concern about what agents are saying and doing and so on. Now, clearly there are some great agents around and clearly agents are important for kind of helping students to understand the UK and so on. But regulating and kind of checking up on what agents are doing is really difficult from the UK, right? Mm, you're absolutely right that there's um, a lot of the uh, current buoyancy in the postgraduate taught market comes from international students. Um, and we've got a real obligation to make sure that they have a great experience on that one year they're here. Um, many of them, it, it's, you know, it's a massive opportunity for them. There's a lot of family funding often and investment um, that allows them to travel here. Um, and it's, it's a once in a lifetime opportunity. So you're absolutely right. We need to get everything behind making sure that it lives up to their expectations. And, and Neil, you know, I mean, it's interesting that we've got PTES, obviously, um, doesn't cover the whole sector. Uh, and there's a prospect of either a kind of NSS extension or a separate NSS for uh, PTES. That's a good thing, is it? Well, it depends what the questions are, doesn't it, Jim? Um, look, the, the, <laughs> where, where, where these things are used to produce league tables, I have a significant problem with them because that's not that's not... The point of them, the point of them is to to give providers and yes, potentially regulators the opportunity to get a to get an insight into where they should be asking questions about institutions, not to produce newspaper league tables. The issue is the more of these things that you put out there, the more the more league tables appear, um, and then it becomes a, a process of gaming them, and then the whole the whole thing is worthless and and marketized and and problematic for for everything else, and causes a lot of the problems we've been talking about earlier in the podcast. I think that, yes, it would it would probably be a good thing if there was a standardised set of data on student satisfaction that went across the student experience, but you've got to protect it from being turned immediately into a league table that will immediately make it pretty much worthless. What's, what's positive about PGT provision at Northampton, Sean? Come on. Um, it's a place where you can actually experiment. So I think with the, um, the core undergraduate provision... Um, as, as we've talked before, it's, it's sometimes highly regulated. And in postgraduate, it's sometimes the place where um, a lot of innovation happens. So we've got, you know, really exciting programs in climate change. Um, I mentioned leather right at the beginning. And um, we're looking at how um, we use science to make sure that um, leather is an incredible, it's a biodegradable product. So we, we've got um, a, a sustainable cycle of leather um, and that area is fascinating and it's an area that research feeds into very swiftly um, and so the course is very responsive to changes in um, research and uh, student requirements. I mean the the diversity of thought and of individuals and of um, nationalities that are brought together by our postgraduate talk community is fantastic and adds so much to our universities and that's one of the key reasons that we should care more about their experience and be doing more to make sure they're fully integrated into campus life. 
So that's about it for this week. Remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com. Don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show via Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or wherever else you listen. And to keep you and your organisation ahead of everything going on in UKHE, do head to the website to find out more about our subscriptions. So thanks very much to Sean, Neil, Mike, everyone at Team Wonky that helps make the show happen. And until next week, stay wonky. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.